there is a sense of no judgment, just a review of life, review life story. You get reviewed, and that's painful enough sometimes to see what we did in this life, you know? But judgment, Scripture says there's judgment. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, We shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an accounting of our works, whether they're good or bad. Some Christians tell me they say, Oh, God's not interested in our works because we're saved by grace. God is interested in our behaviors, and we will be evaluated under his grace. There's wars and rumors of wars. When have when we had wars and rumors of wars? When hasn't that happened? Wars and rumors of wars, nations against nations. Well, World War II, World War I, well, yeah, Revolutionary War, you know, et cetera and so forth. Persecutions and, and apostasy. Where hasn't there been persecution in the Arab countries of Christians? And all through history, apostasy, people turning away from God completely because of the persecutions. There's a massive increase of wickedness. Second Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse, five, verse 1 to 5 says that in the last days, there'll be terrible times shall come. Like the world has never seen. It says that in Matthew 24, verse 21. Titus and others were considered as the Antichrist throughout history. The others throughout history, Mussolini, Hitler, and Stalin, and, you know, Antiochus Epiphanes, and, and you name it, it's the Antichrist. And Christians were band together and awaiting the coming of Jesus. But Jesus did not come. In fact, when the Christians heard about the coming armies, I mentioned this before, to destroy Jerusalem, they thought the Antichrist was coming and they fled to Pella. And they had good reason because Titus took his horse and marched it into the Holy of Holies of the temple. And he, and he slew a pig in the altar of the Holy of Holies. So who would not think he's the Antichrist? The question is this. This is the central question this morning. What epoch from be the beginning of Christianity, have we not seen and interpreted such scenes as referring to the last days? You understand the question? This has been repeated, repeated, repeated. There he is, there he is, there he is. And I, I look at like a squiggle line. I wish I could draw it on there. It starts with a little bit, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'll explain later in this sermon how it, when it gets to the last of the last days, it's a big circle of these things that I just mentioned. Again, in Matthew 24, the only sure sign and answer to the disciples' question in verse 3 is found in verses 26 through 31, which I just read. The last of the last days will include a similar cycle, only the worst ever. But how do you know that the next one is not the worst ever? How do you know that this pales, what's going on in Israel, this pales compared to what's going to happen afterwards? We don't know. Because verse 21 informs us, for then there will be great distress, unequaled. 
from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. How do you measure that? Is that today? I don't know. You know, the, the pattern is there. It could be. And later I'm going to discuss the, the idea of the fig tree, just, just being able to sense the possibility of the second coming. But it's impossible to identify the worst of the worst season. We all think our situations are worse. And this season must be the worst. Because I've never seen Israel attacked this way. But we don't know. I don't care what scripture verses you look at, Daniel and whatever. And even if you try to count all the days and all the years, there was a man named Harold Camping, and he was the president of Family Radio, and he wrote two books on predicting specifically the coming of Jesus in 1994. Does anybody here know that he came? I mean, why are we still here? And he did it again. I, I don't usually mention people's names, but that was, that was not a Pentecostal or a charismatic doing it. That was a Reformed Baptist, whatever. Predicting. It looks like it. It looks like it. It might not be. It might be. It might not be. So what do you do? You get ready. You get serious. Oh, I don't have to because I'm going to go up. Well, maybe you won't go up. Maybe you go sideways. You know, what is this? The Christians in that day, when they thought that Titus was the Antichrist with the Roman armies coming, they didn't say, I'm going to stay here because the rapture's going to happen. They said, whoa. They hightailed at the pillar. Now, I don't know. We in the Assemblies of God believe in a physical rapture. But there are many Christians... Bible-believing and loving the Lord, Christians that believe that we're going to go through a certain amount of tribulation. Some believe the whole tribulation. It's not definitive and clear, and we can't make it clear. The only thing we can be assured of is that we're going to know it. We're going to see it. And what we have to do now is uh, through our whole lives prepare for it. Again, described in 2 Timothy chapter 3, read at home, those days will be the worst of times. Matthew 24, 12 again says that. It's the worst of times. But how do you know that this is the worst of times? It could be 20 years from now, 30 years from now, five months from now. Matthew purposely, I believe, said, uh, this is the sign, because we could all agree, all the Christians could agree, you can't miss the lightning. You can't miss it. I don't care where you are. Verse 8 tells us that even in the most terrible times of calamities, verse 8 tells us these calamities are only the beginning of birth pains, only the beginning of going to give birth I don't see anything easy in this chapter for Christians. You know, if you're looking for an easy way to, be, to, to find religion in an easy way, don't go to Christianity. 
Because Christianity is true, and it is a blessing, but it's really difficult. And this coming of the Lord, the second coming of the Lord, is a difficult time. In fact, some scholars call it the time of Jacob's trouble. Christians at the end times are encouraged in a few ways. This is the encouragement. According to verses 9 to 21, which we're not going to read, and the history of the Roman invasion, they needed to flee to be safe. Although persecution was expected, they remember, we have to remember that they escaped to Pella. But as is implied in verse 22, the days are going to be cut short. What does that idiom mean? The days are going to be cut short for the elect's sake. What does it mean? It means, it means we're going to be safe. We're not going to be under the wrath of God. One thing that's clear in Scripture, we, because of our faith in Jesus Christ, are not any longer under the justice and the wrath of God. Anything that comes with battle and fighting, killing and murdering, and judging this world and the wickedness of this world, we're not going to be part of that. That's what 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, and Romans chapter 1, verse 18. God's wrath and justice cannot be applied to us because of our faith. And that's one of the other problems in near-death experiences. When you read them, there's 20 million of them on record. It's the fact that um, nothing is said about the justice or judgment Nothing is said about elevating Jesus to Christ. And they, never, they never go beyond a certain boundary. So you don't know anything completely. Once you go beyond that boundary, you can't come back, so to speak. That's what they say. If we're not under the justice or the wrath of God any longer because of our faith. But even so, the Bible tells us we have to be watchful. We have to stand firm. And we will escape his judgments, but not persecution. There's a difference. Jesus' coming will be vividly clear to all. That's a comfort to me. Again, in verses 29 to 31, we will read it again. And he will send an army of angels to scoop us up throughout the world to the safety of heaven until a new heaven and a new earth is created. According to Revelation chapter 19, chapter 20, that'll be our final home. You know, we have this word in Christian parlance, in, in our language, in, in regular language too, but even in Christian, death, death, death. But the scripture says not even death will separate us from the love of God. Because for a Christian, that death that we fear so much is really a transformation. It's not an end of things, as they say, as the materialists or the naturalists, they say, the empiricists, they say, oh, it's, a, it's the end of our biological existence. Yeah, it might be so biological existence, but our spirit will be transformed. We will be transformed. Although I don't want to leave my family to have... There's parts of heaven on earth. Relation, love relationships 
are really mimicking the flavor of heaven. The love that we feel for our children, the love we feel for one another, the concern, the care, that even in the midst of all this destruction, people are getting together, people are sending aid, people are you know, concerned and loving. But the problem is, is that this is a fallen world. But there's enough about heaven that we don't want to leave the people that we love. But it's only temporary. That's what the scripture says. I'm just saying what the scripture says. Because salvation is a progressive transformation from when we're born from above all the way through the transformation post-mortality. Where we will be physically glorified in existing with all, no more devil. No more sinful flesh. So he's going to scoop us up, scoop, maybe in the rapture. Some Christians don't believe in the rapture. Well, maybe it'll go scoop us up, but I don't understand. Jesus is going to come back. He's coming back, and he says, come on up. He go up, and then he goes back over there, and then he comes back again. And, you know, I, I don't know about all this coming and going, you know what I mean? Matthew doesn't understand that. Matthew just says, he's going to scoop us up, man. And he's going to scoop up many more people than are going to be than they're going to be condemned. That's what I believe. Anyway, Jesus coming will be vividly clear. Thirdly, the need for Christians of every generation to be vigilant, and especially those of the last generation, which we can't know. But the element of surprise, I don't care what chart you have. I don't care what teacher you follow. I don't care what book you read. There's always going to be an element of surprise at the second coming. Yeah. Oh, wow. Give us a time. Give us a day. Give us the hour. Give us a week. Give us a month. Give us a year. No, I'm not going to give you that. But you see the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. The element of surprise will always continue, especially for the evil ones. Remember Noah. He mentions Noah. Noah, we know that the flood is coming. He knows the flood is coming. He's building and building and building. Everybody's having a feast. They're giving in marriage. They're participating in idolatries and immoralities and thievery and breaking all the commandments of the world. Right? We know that the flood is coming. Noah knew the flood was coming, but not when. He just faithfully kept building the ark. Faithfully keep building the ark. But the fact that this future, last event, is in sinful humanity's history, would take a long time to arrive is implied. I think in the parable found in, the, in, in verses 45 to 48 where it talks about the evil servant thinking that the master is going to be away for a long time. A long time he starts being evil. He starts sinning. He starts causing people to be enslaved and eats and drinks. And all of a sudden the master shows up. But 
evil has a long time to grow. Has a long time to grow. But as in the day of Noah, the first destruction of the earth, he did not have a calendar of events, nor did the wicked have a calendar of events. He just kept faithfully building the ark. But what about Jesus' metaphor, the fig tree in verses 32 to 34? We certainly, you know, we, we, we should uh, learn the lesson of the fig tree. When you see, you know, it's drawing nigh. Of course, everybody has a different interpretation of the fig tree to determine that he's really close by. All we can know, according to this parable, is that it's near. Oh, that's really helpful when you consider the fact that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 10, it tells us to the Lord, to God, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. And that's really great to say that something is near. How do you calculate that? You can't. But what could be a faint shadow of these days coming? I think there are four. And I'm going to just mention them. There are four. M-A-D, capital M-A-D. You know what that stands for? Mutually Assured Destruction. This is the potential of destroying all of existence. You need, you need uh, um, advanced nuclear weaponry. Uh, d does that exist today? Have people been talking about, I'm going to nuke you? Putin, oh, I'm not going uh, to use nuclear weapons. Even Israel is implying. When you see mutually, the ability to mutually assure destruction, it could be near. Delusional leaders. You know what a delusion is? It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, and God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe a lie that they could win a nuclear war. The surrounding of Jerusalem. Not, there's no more talk of a two-state solution. There's no more talk of a two-state. I would love a two-state solution. Let the Jews live at peace. Or let the Palestinians live at peace. But that's not the point of demonic, murderous anger that the terrorists have. I'm not going to psychologize them. I don't know what their backgrounds are, what they've been through and not been through. But I'll tell you the truth. I saw a documentary one time, and it was really telling. It was from this, I think, this Lebanese man. A Palestinian man, he was covered, his face was covered. He was one of the leaders. His face was covered, and he was giving an interview to a reporter. He says, I have to apologize for us. And the reporter says, why? He says, but when we come to your country, you help us set up our mosque. You encourage the worship of Allah. You, you do good to When you come to our country, we arrest you, we murder you, we kill you. And let me just tell you something. All that money that the aid that you give to the so-called Palestinians, it goes to Hamas, Hamas, Hezbollah. It goes to those people to buy weapons when they should have been buying food for their people. 
That's the problem. The problem is evil. And it's not just the Palestinians. I mean, there's Zionist state. The Zionist state is not waiting for God. A Zionist state is a secular, unbelieving Zionist state. And they deserve to have a, a country, of course. But, but it's definitely not Mount Zion. Zionism is different than uh, Judaism is a religion. So uh, when you see the surrounding of Jerusalem by their enemies, for the purpose of full destruction, no longer two-state solution, full destruction, we're going to kill every Jew we find. And you know what? Well, then we're going to kill you. And we're going to do it for Allah. As if Allah is gracious and uh, Allah is not. Allah is just the name of God. It's just the name for God. God is love. The scripture says God is love. First John says it twice. God is love. And if we truly are disciples of God, we will be expressing more love than anger. So the surrounding of Jerusalem for the destruction of Jerusalem, not to find out how we could have a solution. And the gospel is preached throughout the modern world, not just Paul's world. What did Paul know about India and Africa? What did Paul know about, you know, the Philippines? When you see those four things happen, the preaching of the gospel throughout the world in verse 14 of chapter 24, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end. Oh, that's, that, that solves it. Then the end. Well, when you put those four things together, it could be. What are we going to do about it? And nothing we can do about it but to be vigilant. And, and it ends, really, it ends, this, this whole parable, this whole episode ends with the parable of the ten virgins, you know, the ones that are the wedding virgins. Uh, the, 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 what do they call them? The maid of honor, the maid of honor, the bridesmaids. They have to have their oil filled and ready for the groom and the bride to come. And if they don't, it's... When Jesus comes, there's not enough time to get more oil in the lamps. In conclusion, the only clear sign is found in Matthew 24, verses 21 to 31. As clear as a lightning storm. No one can miss it. Our part remains in watching, working, and ready. The parable of the ten bridal virgins shows that in Matthew 25. Now, in closing... Let's read Acts. Let's just stand and read Acts chapter 1, verses 6, beginning of verse 6. Acts chapter 1. Then they gathered around him and asked the risen Christ, and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time, you already resurrected, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Yeah. Get the angels of heaven to come down and start a war and just defeat everybody and let's start the kingdom. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times and the dates, the times and the dates. The Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power. That's our part. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men addressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way as lightning, visible, clear, that you, the same way you have seen him go up into heaven.